Welcome to the IIF Global Regulatory Update Podcast. I'm Martin Boer, Director of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of International Finance. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jason Healy, who is a Senior Research Scholar and Adjunct Professor at Columbia University's School for International and Public Affairs, SIPA, specializing in cyber conflict, competition, and cooperation. Professor Healy has previously worked at the White House, at the Pentagon, and twice at Goldman Sachs, and has been identified as the first historian of cyber conflict. We've also collaborated in the past around the areas of addressing market fragmentation around cyber risk, promoting partnerships between the public sector and financial firms. In this podcast, we're going to focus on cyber conflict and financial services. Jay, it would also be great to hear your views on the current threat environment, how COVID-19 is impacting the battlefield, and where you see things more long-term. We'll also focus a bit, of course, on financial services and talk about how defense security intersect and cooperate with financial institutions, all areas where your insights are extremely interesting and relevant to our listeners. Good morning, Jay. Where am I calling you and how are you and your family holding up? We're here in New York, and so you might be hearing some of New York in the background here, and overall, we're holding up just fine. The tragedies have all been relatively manageable, and I think in 2020, that's the best we can hope for. Great. I'm glad to hear it. The COVID-19 pandemic is obviously reshaping the world in so many ways. When we look at cyber risk, we see that it has increased in many places because employees are working remotely. We're hearing 90 to 95% at some organizations. And customers are are also accessing business services from their private phones, from tablets, from Wi-Fi connections at home. How do you think that the pandemic has impacted cyber risk across the board? To start on that, Martin, I want to cast our heads back to the early history of computers. It turned out that computer security was having a good lock on the door. Because the computer took a huge room, right? It was almost the entire floor of the building because it was one of these big IBM mainframes and you couldn't access it other than from that room and only a few people would even understand how to interact with a computer. And so the history of cybersecurity has been expanding the risk horizon as that's changed. One of the best reports on cybersecurity came out in 1970. It's called the WHERE Report. It was done by the Defense Science Board because then you now had computer terminals, right? You'd have dumb terminals that would connect to the computer in the room. And the computer professionals at the time said, "How how do we secure this? Because now it's not just the people in the room. And then you started to have microcomputers and computers on the desktop and now computers in our phones in our pockets and computers in the smart grid and in our cars. So we've had this 50-year history of pushing out that risk horizon from a locked room to now basically everyone to where interconnected. So one of the main ways we dealt with that risk horizon was saying, this is the perimeter of our bank or our organization. And everything outside that is outside and everything inside is us and is more trusted. Now, we were already blasting past that with supply chain risk, with third and fourth party risks, with the cloud. And so in one way, the pandemic has accelerated this trend so that we've got even less distinction between the inside and the out. Yes, no, that's very much true. I remember when I studied at Santa Barbara in the late 
80s, we had a Cray computer that only very few people got access to, and we had to get special permission even to get an email account to use it. I was wondering, though, obviously, the personal devices, that range has increased over time. But I think what we're now also seeing is that people are doing their work in their private world and using their private devices. And that was probably a lot less prevalent before covid I mean, certainly for many of us, especially in finance, right, that process either started or accelerated when we got that BlackBerry. All of a sudden, we were all checking our emails on the subway trip into work and, you know, blasting before bed and first thing we would wake up. And so as I've been talking to my colleagues in technology and especially in finance, Many of them highlight that what the pandemic has done was less a fundamental change than just a broad acceleration of the trends that were already starting to happen. And I know that in your past podcasts with Jay Raj, with Anvedu, and maybe with Catherine Rosen and others coming up, they've really talked about how especially this is changing within the finance sector. Certainly the trends we've seen on the criminal side have really accelerated, where the criminals have just been able to say, you know, maybe they took some time off first because they had to deal with COVID themselves, but just the ransomware schemes coming up, the really rampant phishing that's been tremendously accelerating. I've been relatively pleased in that it seems like for those of us in finance, maybe the nation state threat hasn't been as pronounced as we might have feared. Obviously, if you're in healthcare, Or if you're running a political campaign for a state election official, you might see the nation state threat has been accelerating, but maybe not so much as we would have been expecting in finance. So we've definitely been hearing in finance that there's been a lot of phishing, a lot of spoofing under COVID-19 wrappers. There's been some ransomware, some malware as well, but not necessarily anything more sophisticated than that. So I think you're right in that we're not seeing necessarily more you know, highly sophisticated, maybe state-backed attacks during the COVID pandemic. Although there was, of course, the case of the stock exchange in New Zealand, and there's been a couple other cases um, of some outages at some vendors. Maybe I can ask you today, yeah, also given, you know, your background in really looking at, at cyber conflicts, if we look at sort of the last 30, 35 years, an area that you have studied, What would you say is the current situation in terms of cyber conflicts and definitely state-backed cyber conflicts? Are you seeing that that has also accelerated over time or is it more stable? Yes, thank you for asking. I actually just had a paper come out this morning on this. It's at the Texas National Security Review where my colleague at Columbia University, Bob Jervis, and I, we wrote on, has cyber been escalatory, right? Is it causing more conflict between states or is it actually reducing the intensity of that conflict? And we spend a few pages on this and we look back over 40 years from 1988 up through 2018 or so. And you really see this clear trend of states intensifying. And what we mean by intensifying is either that the attacks are getting worse, objectively, as much as you can say, that the attacks are blowing through whatever norms that states might have thought were in place, or even seeing are we having more, you know, quote unquote, troops that are committed to the fight. You could say, well, you know, where the U.S. was more committed and intensified in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or less so now because we have fewer troops there. 
And across all those measures, you see this very strong sense of intensification of what states are doing has just gotten worse and worse and worse over these four decades. Now, we can maybe feel lucky in finance that the heavy hand of those conflicts isn't on finance as bad as some of the other sectors now, but it is still there quite heavily. We'd certainly expect, I would think, um, some action by Iran as things are intensifying over mm. their nuclear enrichment. There was a article that came out, oh, call it in mid-September by the New York Times, David Sanger and others, that said Iran is not responding with armed attacks, right? They're not doing bombs or assassination attempts because they want to keep their heads down, but they feel they can just do cyber attacks and they're not going to be punished so hard from the United States or Israel. So on one hand, great, less death and destruction. On the other hand, oh no, more, more cyber so the attacks. the concept of warfare has obviously really shifted. Uh, when in Washington we hear at the Department of Defense, the Pentagon talk about cyber wars, they say that the U.S. is currently at war with at least four countries, right? But that's very interesting because when we traditionally think of wars, if we think of, of von Clausewitz and those sorts of books, we hear that a war includes, you know, a competence dying per year, sometimes like a thousand competence dying per year. But we do now hear in cyber warfare, where, as you say, you know, not many people have died or have been attacked in a real world way. How do you see that concept of warfare changing? And are there maybe better metrics in cyber warfare to look at rather than, you know, enemy competence that have died? Yeah, absolutely. I've always been something of a pessimist because I've been following the cyber trends for over 20 years now. Every year is worse than the last one, almost no matter what statistic you look at. You say, oh my gosh, like the size of the breaches this year or the size of the largest denial of service attack or, you know, the attacks on the power grid or on finance. Every year seems worse than the last. But that kind of hid this trend that adversaries are still generally staying below. And I'm saying adversaries here to mean nation states crossing that threshold of death and destruction. Right? We've been talking about a digital Pearl Harbor since 1991, since June of 1991. And so obviously we're getting something not quite right if we've been worrying about this thing for, what, 29 years? And we still haven't seen that significant attack happen yet. But we have seen sort of early indications of what could happen, right? You pointed out recently that in Germany there was a case where the hospital was shut down to a ransomware attack. And, you know, I don't know if that came from a sovereign-backed attacker or not, but one of the effects of that attack was that the hospital was unable to serve, you know, the people that were sick and somebody died. And, and so as we go further along uh, the digital transformation, the Internet of Things, where hospitals and pacemakers and all these things are tied to the Internet, you think that that could change quickly, that all of a sudden we can see sort of real world impacts, if you will, coming from the digital space. Absolutely. And, and I'll talk about Germany first, and then I think we'll talk about how we might see that changing. I, I'm sorry I, that this prediction was correct, but in mid-March, I made the prediction that we are going to see um, a death related to cyber attack during the pandemic and that we will see a prosecutor bringing not just a cyber crime charge, 
but a manslaughter charge, an involuntary homicide charge. And that is, in fact, what we are seeing in Germany right now, where the prosecutor is saying that but for this ransomware attack, which was a, a Russian ransomware criminal group, they're saying, heck with the cybercrime statutes, we're, we're going to, uh, I think in this case, it was involuntary homicide charge against this Russian malware group. And so I wish at the beginning of the pandemic, we would have seen the U.S. Attorney General and other high-profile prosecutors around the world warning the ransomware group specifically, make sure you are not hitting hospitals or others that are involved in first response um, and care for patients because we are going to go after you hard. We could have done a better job of warning this. This wasn't just foreseen, but uh, foreseeable, but many of us did foresee it. And unfortunately, I think we are going to see more of this. When I did my history book of cyber conflict, which is oh, seven years ago now, we said it's easy, even trivial, to use cyber capabilities to take down something on the internet. It's very hard to keep it down over time, especially in the face of determined defenses. What cyber attacks were taking down were only things made of bits and bytes, things made of silicon, right? You know, we all have lost a paper, a report that we were working on when, you know, when the computer eats it and it sucks and you started it, but you started again, mm -hmm. right? No one's really terrorized when that happens. But now that we're doing the Internet of Things, we're doing the smart grid, we're doing smart cars, we're doing smart everything, now we've got things that aren't just made of ones and zeros and silicon, we're, we're connecting things that are made of concrete and steel, which are no more secure than the things that were connected 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so now we've lowered the bar for cyber attackers to intentionally or not, as we saw with Germany, have a lethal impact. And you mentioned banks and you mentioned hospitals. So you're mentioning basically private sector institutions being attacked by public sector, by, by sovereign-backed adversaries. And so a question there for you would be then, Jay, is that given that the public sector is generally not allowed to attack back in most jurisdictions, right? Banks are not allowed to start hacking back to the Russian adversaries in that case. How do you sort of see the role then of the public sector and the private sector when the private sector obviously also has very good, very good people with blue hats, you know, very good people that can identify these things, sometimes way before the public sector learns about it? The main way that at least in the United States has been responding is saying absolutely the United States military has to get involved and we are going to take the fight as close to the adversary's home systems as we can. And the U.S. is really tripling down, all right, now that's going to be a military thing, especially if it's a nation state on the other side, but maybe even against um, criminal groups, right? Australia has come out and said that they're using military offensive cyber operations against COVID scammers and ransomware folks. We're also seeing, I think, probably increased prosecutions from law enforcement uh, within the United States mid-September. There was indictment week where all sorts of indictments came out. I would wish that we would take some of that energy or more of that energy from taking the fight to the enemy, you know, the best defense is a good offense, and just try and triple down on a strong defense. We have done work yeah. at Columbia on what's what have been the innovations that have given the defenders the greatest advantage over attackers at the largest scale and least cost. And let's do more of those. 
let's really try and give the defender the advantage over attackers. I thought your example about Australia, Jay, was really good because they've basically recently said that if you attack one of their critical infrastructures in their country, then they're going to attack back from a military defense perspective. So when you look at the financial services sector, do you think that financial stability can be impacted by cyber events? I know it's an area that you've looked at in the past. Yes, we did some work at Columbia and collaborating with IIF and your members to say under what circumstances might cyber attacks not just affect a bank, an individual financial institution, but cause financial instability of the type that we saw in 2008 and 2009. And and we thought it was absolutely possible, especially because Cyber has a lot of correlation risk that are there, but are very hard for us to understand. You know, most obviously, if an IT company that's too big to fail has a Lehman moment, right? They're with everyone's data on Friday and gone on Monday. Even if an individual financial institution made all of the right risk decisions, they could still get impacted by this cascade of events. And also, it's especially possible because unlike normally when we have a financial crisis, It's because everybody is acting in their own self-interest, and it happens to cause a crisis. With cyber, the adversary is choosing the time and place where they can have the most impact. And it's a very different kind of mindset than what we normally have when we think of financial stability. So you're right. I think that the financial sector is the largest target and has for a long time been the most attacked but it's also the sector that has probably invested in the most in this, along with you know, IT and cable firms. So you know, I was wondering, what is the financial sector doing right? Because you mentioned earlier that during COVID, you know, we haven't really necessarily seen the large breaches and attacks that one could have thought might be coming. Certainly, the largest financial institutions, the GCFEs and others like them, have been able to put an awful lot of money into dealing with cyber criminals, into cyber threat intelligence to help them deal with with nation states, significant amount of sharing. The sector has set up the FSARC to look at systemic resilience for the finance sector. So they've been doing a lot right. And a lot of that is trickling down and giving direct benefit to the institutions that can't quite commit enough money. I'd like to come back to your point about Is there a role for private sector, for banks or others, to take direct action themselves? Normally, I'm not a fan of it. And I suspect many of your listeners would not be fans either, especially if you have regulators listening in. But let me pose this. Let's say that you had the global SIFIs come together, and they all put a certain amount of money into a company that was going to be licensed, insured, bonded, all of the controls you could possibly matter. And in the United States, they are deputized by an accredited law enforcement body, say a um, New York State police, that says, yes, there is a limited range of action that would normally only be done by law enforcement, but you are hereby deputized to this new entity, probably a nonprofit entity. And we could imagine such a group with former law enforcement professionals, with former intelligence or military professionals that then says, all right, what is a limited set of action that we could do to help reduce the impact on our private sector banking members? 
right? There's a lot of the things that I would normally be strongly against that you could say, all right, there is maybe a limited set of things that we could try and do that might actually help us in the long run and may not just cause more problems than it creates. I think that would be very powerful, Jay. I do wonder, though, about the fact that cyber incidents don't respect national borders. And so if one firm gets attacked in New York, the same attack might also be happening in London or in Mexico City. So I was wondering, how do you counter that charge where sort of national defenses and platforms are being organized to take on a problem that is very much cross-border and global in nature? Certainly, we're already having to deal with that when we're looking at purely law enforcement responses. Surely, in many of these, there is a global operation that involves law enforcement from many jurisdictions. We saw this quite a bit when the U.S. FBI would do botnet takedowns, like Game Over Zeus or some of the other big, big botnet takedowns. They would work with some other jurisdictions, but certainly not all jurisdictions. That might be a model there. And it might be that you know some jurisdictions are not going to like the results or they're not going to like the process. And again, I'm not necessarily recommending this. I'm saying that if we look and identify each of the problems, we might be able to come up with an experiment and to treat it as an experiment and see if this is the kind of thing that we might be able to pull off. And we know that the U.S. obviously works very close in the Five Eyes framework, but also in G7, where we've seen a lot of cooperation around stress testing and around those sorts of things. Do you think that there could be wider forums, for example, I'm thinking of NATO or perhaps Europol, where the U.S., the Japanese and the Swiss are also members and the Norwegians? Do you think that there could be larger groupings than just the Five Eyes or the G7? Oh, without a doubt. In two ways. One, when we had the financial crash of 2008, the credit crunch, the world generally knew how to respond, right? We, we had the IMF. We had the Bank for International Settlement. We had central bankers. We had the G7, G8. And when the G G8 wasn't enough, it could form the foundation for the G20. If we were to have a similar cyber incident, a large-scale cyber incident, such as, say, a cloud provider going down, we have no such structure to try and reconstitute the internet or figure out how we're going to deal with this large-scale cyber crisis. So I think something like that, a G20 plus the ICT20, like, like 20 or, or 40, the number doesn't matter, of the IT equivalent of systemically important financial institutions, right? Systemically important IT institutions <laughs> to help us navigate that crisis would be absolutely critical. So sort of a parallel structure to the Financial Stability Board, which oversees, you know, global financial institutions, right? No, that sounds really compelling. But it would have to have the, the key companies, right? I mean, you'd have to have the major providers, you'd have like, like AT&T or Deutsche Telekom, you would have to have the key platforms like Microsoft and Google. And that would mean some others would have to be left out, even if they are geographically representative, because they're not actually bringing solutions to solve the crisis. But also, several of my colleagues, uh, especially at Atlantic Council and other, have said it would be good to have a grouping of the mature democracies, saying, you know, it's not based on your economy size or the type of the economy or who you happen to be allied with during World War II, which is kind of the five eyes. It's just based on the 10 or 15 most important Western democracies 
Mm-hmm. Like an OECD type of But even more limited. Right, right. Interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you, Jay, also, you know, as we've been talking, obviously cyber risk has been around for a long time, but the financial regulators, supervisors, the global standard setters, they're still looking at it at the moment and are trying to figure out, you know, how can we put in place the right frameworks to give firms enough flexibility, but also to make sure that they are being supervised and that they are doing the right things to support cyber resilience. So maybe in closing, I just wanted to ask you from your work, are there sort of policy lessons or considerations that you think are worth highlighting in the policy space? I'll conclude with one that I'm happy to see that it worked the way that we thought. Uh, I had been the vice chairman of the, of the FSISAC, which is the, then it was U.S. only, sharing and collaboration for the finance sector. And then I went to the White House, 2003-2005. And during that White House time, we started to see the very early pandemic planning. And so one of the key questions that I was helping the finance sector and others in that, that early pandemic planning was, would we get regulatory relief so that we could socially distance on the trading floor, right? It had been mandatory, right? Regulators saying, no, you can only trade in licensed places, in the places that you tell us. And of course, being regulators, they, they would never say, yes, we definitely will give you regulatory relief. But I've just been pleased, right? A lot of the things that might have gone poorly went relatively smoothly during that, say, February to April timeframe the tremendous steps that the finance sector had to undertake so that we could maintain the smooth functioning of the finance sector to underpin the economy, we're able to pull it off, not only on the private sector side, but on the regulator side. And I think there's going to be a lot. When we look back at these days and and the histories get written, I think we're going to see just so much flexibility and just so much really heroic work on both sides. Definitely seeing the regulators leaning forward during that early COVID crisis, where things like wet signatures and physical vault counts and the need for fixed telephone lines or like traders having to stay in the building, a lot of those rules were either suspended or they were lifted because they're realizing that we're in more of an interconnected digital world where those physical requirements are not always necessary or actually very sensible, right? So I think that's definitely a great point. I very much enjoyed talking to you, Jay. I always like hearing your recommendations about what's going to happen next. So we definitely want to check in with you in a period and see where we stand. So I look forward to doing that and hopefully also to seeing you again in person when things normalize. Wonderful. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast. And I hope that you all stay safe and healthy. Please consider subscribing to the IF Global Regulatory Update wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and stay safe.